Father, thank you that we can come and uh, we can sit under your word this morning. I thank you for Acts chapter 6. I thank you for those first seven verses and uh, the way that they, they tell us the story of what happened, but they also give us uh, insight into how you want your church to be structured and to function. Lord, I pray that you use this to encourage us and to build us up as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do a little bit of ecclesiology this morning. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. So ecclesia is the New Testament word for church, the study of the ecclesia, ecclesiology. But before we get into that, we're going to do a little bit of geography and politics. And then we're going to dive into the word of God. So let's put the first slide up here. Matthew, there are two countries. I've given you guys the outlines of the countries, so it may give you a little bit of a clue. One country, when it comes to organ donor rate, 12% of the adults say, if I die, you can have my organs for whoever who needs them. Another country has a rate of 99.9%. I want you guys to find one or two people near you. Come up with some ideas. What could possibly explain the differences? Is it language? Is it culture? Is it religion? Is it values? Is it what, what do you think makes the difference? Why would one country be so generous with their organs and another country relatively stingy? Go ahead. Take, take a few seconds and talk it out. See what kind of ideas you come up with. Folks on the live stream right now are thinking, I can't hear anything. What's going on? I'm just staring at this funny-looking guy standing on the stage. All right. You guys probably came up with some good ideas. We're going to do this again, but I'm going to give you a little little more information. So we're going to move our map around. We're going to get some labels. So this is Germany and Austria. All right. So if you're thinking like different parts of the world... Or different languages or different cultures, well, that falls apart. They share a border, they share a language, almost identical, identical, identical cultures, religiously very similar. Uh, so what could possibly explain the difference now that you know that? Go ahead, talk again, see if that changes your take on anything. Anybody want to be brave and make a guess as to what the difference is? Raise your hand. Nick, what do you think? That is exactly it. Yes. So, good job, Nick. So, in Germany, you have to opt in. For us, it's like checking a box when you're at the the BMV. For them, it's filling out a paper, sending it in, saying, yes, I want to opt in to the Owner Dorgan program. Um, in Austria, everybody is automatically in, and you have to opt out by filling out paperwork and sending it in. It is simply an administrative difference, but what a difference it makes, right? If you're in a car accident and you need an organ, which country do you want to be in? Right? Probably in Austria, right? If you're concerned about the government telling you what you have to do with your body, which country do you want to be in? Probably in Germany, right? Administration makes a big difference. You guys remember your schoolhouse rock days? You know that in our country, we've got these three branches of government. The legislative branch is supposed to make the laws. The judicial branch is supposed to interpret the laws. And the executive branch is supposed to execute or administer the laws, right? In recent years, recent decades, our country has really uh, kind of failed at this three-branch system. So at the point now where really there's almost no legislating done, um, there's a lot of theater going on in the, in the legislative world, but not much actually getting done. And so for decades, the judicial branch has been taking more and more authority. They've been saying, we're instead of just interpreting the laws, we're actually going to make 
the laws. So very famously, as was talked about this week with the hearings about Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade came about because the judicial branch said, we're not just going to interpret, we're actually going to establish laws. Now, it's 48 years ago, 62 million dead humans later. That was a role that they didn't really have, but they took upon themselves. More recently, in 2015, the judicial branch said, we're going to create what we consider a constitutional right for same-sex marriage. We're just going to create it out of thin air, and we're going to say that the Constitution supports this. The Constitution says nothing about that. That's a breakdown of our system. Now, the executive branch has grown into this huge administrative state. This is why we're talking about it today. Where it was supposed to be, you know, president, vice president, a bunch of people making sure that the country's executing the laws that the legislature has written and the judiciary has interpreted. It has now become this huge administrative state. It's bigger than the other two by far, and it's, it's opaque. It's, they're not... Uh, elected people. I'm not really sure who they are. Why do they have all this authority? So all of the CDC and FDA arguments that are going on right now, it's because the, that administrative arm of the executive branch is growing into this big thing. Administration makes a huge difference, positive or negative. Now that's true in the church also. I consider the two main roles of the church to be the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus and the discipling or the the teaching, the instructing, the growing of believers in Jesus. I believe that's what we're primarily called to as a church. Proclaim the gospel to make new believers, grow those believers into maturity so that they can multiply and make new believers themselves. If we don't have an administrative skeleton supporting that, we're not going to be successful. We'll put it this way. So I could get up here and I could preach the best sermon of my life, right? Or let's, let's do it this way. Let's trade me in for a better model. You get the best preacher, the best discipler there is in the whole world, right? And yet... There's nothing going on administratively in the church. Nobody is scheduling who's working in the nursery or serving in kids' club. Nobody's cleaning the the snow off or the ice or fixing the roof or putting the bulletins or making sure the electricity's on or that the toilet's flush. None of that stuff is happening. You've got the best preacher and discipler as your pastor. What's the outcome? It's going to be failure, right? You guys are probably not interested in sitting in here for an hour and 15 minutes in the middle of February listening to the best preacher if the furnaces are not functioning and you're freezing your tails off. That works the other way, too. You could have the smoothest running, like well-oiled machine church. Administratively, everybody knows their role. They know exactly what they're doing. They're executing it with with, uh, excellence. Everything is working together really well. And you've got no proclamation of the gospel, and you've got no discipling of believers. Well, you don't have a church, much less a healthy church at that point. We need both of these things working together. That's what our passage today in Acts chapter 6 is about. If you want to find Acts chapter 6, it's on page 914 in the Pew Bibles. As you're finding that, I'd like to suggest that Maybe there's a couple metaphors that would help us think this through. Uh, the first metaphor would be that of sailing. So this is a picture from a few years ago. You recognize Carrie and Lily. You won't recognize Ben, who lives in Minnesota there, but they're uh, having a great time sailing up in the north woods of Minnesota. If you've ever been sailing, any of you guys ever sailed? Anybody? Not a lot of sailing that goes on in this part of the world, since all the water's kind of yucky. But uh, yeah, if you've been sailing, you know that there's a certain amount of skill involved, right? Um, or there's a certain lack of skill that maybe was involved in your experience with sailing. You've got to know how to rig the sail. You've got to know how to get it up, trim it just right, keep your lines neat, feather the rudder just right, balance the boat, read the wind, all of these things. You've got to get it right or you're not going anywhere. Or even worse, you get the sail up and it just flips you over, Right? 
Without the skill, without the administrative aspect of sailing, it doesn't matter if you've got 80 degrees, consistent 12-mile-an-hour winds out of the southwest, nobody else in your way. That doesn't matter at all if you don't know how to do those administrative skills to harness the power and direct the boat. But it also doesn't do any good if you don't have any wind. You have the best boat, the best crew, the best sails. The, you got everything rigged correctly. All the lines are neat. They're not going to get tangled. Everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing, but there's no wind blowing at all. You're not going anywhere. It is similar in the church. For us to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, God must be working in the church, providing the power, the, the spirit moving and, and, and moving our church. And if we are administratively unable to harness that power because we're not doing the things that need to get done, we're not going anywhere. Another metaphor would be the trellis and the vine. If you guys have ever tried to grow a vine, maybe a grapevine or something at your house, if you just let it go along the ground forever, it's never going to be healthy. But if you have a trellis or a building or even just a ladder or something that it can climb up and get off the ground, then the vine can thrive and produce the fruit that it needs to produce. You can't have great production like this without a trellis holding up the vine. All right, let's get to the Bible. Acts chapter 6. You'll Remember from our series that the Christian church is very young at this point, just a few days or weeks, maybe months by today, old. They've grown from just a handful of people to many thousands of people very rapidly. They're meeting every day in the temple for the proclamation of the Word of God, the teaching and discipleship. They're gathering in their homes every day, sharing a meal, sharing communion, um, worshiping together every day, growing together, and they're spreading like crazy through the city of Jerusalem. They have had significant challenges. Peter and John, two of their main guys, have been arrested twice now. We saw last week they were beaten and told never to speak in the name of Jesus again. And of course, they went right back to telling people about Jesus. Those challenges didn't slow the church down. It actually sped the church up. Think about our football team over the course of this season. The challenges that they faced, they overcame it. And victory last night, and everybody's excited. That's, that's the kind of thing that the church has been experiencing so far in the book of Acts. Come at us, doesn't matter. We're going to rise above it. Victory, more people, God is moving, this is great. And yet today we're going to see a challenge come. It's different than those external challenges. It's an internal challenge, and it threatens the health, the unity, the peace, the effectiveness of this baby church. So we're going to see here, we're going to see a problem, we're going to see their solution, and we're going to see the result. Hopefully we're going to see how it applies directly to us. So Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, it's page 914. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the word disciple here just means a, a student or a learner or a follower. These are all the, the church people. They are not simply consumers of Christian products. They are growing as disciples every day in the temple, every day in their homes, spreading the gospel, growing with each other. They're alive. It's dynamic. There's good stuff happening, and yet there's this threat. We're introduced by Mr. Luke here to two categories of Christians at the time. You've got the Hellenists and you've got the Hebrews. Now, at this point in the history of the church, practically everybody who's a Christian is also Jewish. They saw Christianity primarily as the fulfillment of Judaism. So they've been waiting for their Messiah for thousands of years. Jesus is that Messiah. So anybody who's a Christian there in Jerusalem has said, uh, I am Jewish, but I'm taking it a step further. I'm trusting that Jesus is the Messiah. 
They're turning from their sin, that's repentance, they're putting all their faith in Christ alone, his death on the cross, his resurrection. They're becoming born again, yet they're still in the framework of Judaism, even meeting every day in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So if we know that, we can kind of understand, we've got one group that's called the Hebrews, that's the name for the Jewish people, right? But there's this other group called the Hellenists. Are these people that follow Helen? What, what is this? Right? Well, Hellenists would be the, the Greek side of things. So the original name for the nation of Greece and the language of Greek was Elis. Gives us the Hellenists. So we've got Greek uh, language speaking, Greek cultured people. Many of them came to Jerusalem for that feast of uh, Pentecost, and they've come from all over the place. They come from the Greek world. They're Jewish by religion, but their language, the way they go to school and go to work and the things that they do, it all is really more Greek than it is Jewish. So you've got a cultural divide. We would even say like a, a racial divide. You've got like the purebred Hebrew Jewish people, and then you've got all these others scattered around, and some of them are kind of mixed in with different nationalities, and yet they're coming together under the name of Jesus as Christians. And for a while, there's this great unity and excitement, like, look, Jesus transcends all these boundaries. You know, when the Spirit's poured out on Pentecost, and the, the apostles are able to speak in all those different languages and be heard by all these people of different languages, it brings people together under the proclamation of the gospel. Like, that's an amazing thing. And yet, here we have this problem, where the, the Hellenist widows, specifically, are getting treated worse than the Hebrew widows. There's this daily distribution of food, and it's particularly important for the widows. In ancient culture, if you were a widow, you were very vulnerable. Like the two most vulnerable groups are widows and orphans over and over and over again in the Old and New Testament. And the people of Israel and the people of the church are called to care for widows and orphans specifically and on purpose. If you were a widow in that culture and you had no family to take you in and care for you, you are either starving to death or you're probably selling yourself as a slave in order to survive. The church had a whole bunch of widows in the church, many of whom probably had been kicked out of their families when they said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. So how are they going to survive? Part of that is the church is pooling their resources. They're giving a daily distribution of food to the widows, but somehow it's not going well. The Hebrew widows are getting more food than the Greek widows. It shouldn't be that way. It's a favoritism there. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a racism there. Maybe it's simply an accident and an oversight, or it's a result of the fact that we just... We have biases where we tend to like and favor people who are like us and not people who are not like us. We don't know what's going on there, what's causing it. We don't know if it's a sinful motivation, an accident, an oversight, or whatever, but there is a problem, and it needs to be solved because it's starting to damage the church. The apostles, at this point, they're going to they're come up with a plan, and it's an administrative solution. Now, it's got theological things tied into it. If there's racism going on and favoritism and selfishness and laziness and all those, other, those are all theological issues, but, but their plan is primarily an administrative plan. Verse 2, the 12, that is the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You might think, well, these guys are kind of full of themselves. Can they not help out? Are they that much better than everybody else? And that's not what they're getting at. They recognize rightly that they have been given a specific role. These guys spent three years with Jesus, hearing him teach, watching him do all of his stuff, trained by him in order to take over the ministry after his resurrection and ascension. 
They have been given an authority. They've been given experiences to equip them. They are called to a specific ministry. And what we see here in the the words of the apostles say, uh, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So they understand that one of their, if not their, their primary reasons for being apostles is the ministry of the word, the preaching and the teaching, the proclamation of the gospel the word of God. And they said, basically, look, if we have to worry about the food distribution, the the ministry of the word, the proclamation of the gospel is going to suffer. And that's primarily what we're called to. We need to do that. It's not that they're being elitist, that they don't want to suffer or serve. These guys are all going to serve and suffer in ways that none of us in this room probably will ever experience but they very clearly understand their calling and the fact that they can't do it all. If this is their primary calling and they're distracted by this, the church is not what it should be. I keep track of all the hours that I work, and then at the end of the year, it gives me this nice pie graph to show me how I've split up my time. We've got a few weeks left, but so far this year, 23% of my work hours have been spent on sermon preparation, and another 7.5% have been spent on study related to that and other lessons and things that come up, right? So about about 30% of my time is is spent preparing me to speak at you guys, There's all kinds of other things that happen, but 30%. Maybe that's too much, maybe that's too little, you might have an opinion about that. You're welcome to share that with me. I think for the apostles, that number was probably a lot higher. I think they ate, they slept, they studied, and they talked. Because this the thing, the way that the church is growing, how could they possibly do anything else? Also notice in verse 2 here that the full number of the disciples are brought together. We don't know how many thousands that is. Imagine the, the child care nightmare that that would be. Bring everybody together, right? And we're going to talk about this. So it's not simply that the apostles are saying, we're going to fix it and tell you what to do. They're involving the whole congregation. That's going to become really clear in the next verse, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. All right, so now to the ministry of the word, we've added prayer. So they're eating, they're sleeping, they're studying, they're preaching, they're praying. Maybe they're playing checkers too. Who knows? That, but that's mostly what they're doing. They're, they're preaching, teaching, and they're praying. They want to devote themselves to that. So you guys pick seven men to deal with the food problem. This will work great if they pick the right men. We know that the apostles intend this to be done carefully, prayerfully, intentionally. They're not just saying, okay, who wants to volunteer to be a food guy? They realize this is more than just making sure that things are counted correctly and distributed correctly. And This is is more than just a skill thing. This is a character thing. Because we get these three qualifications in here. We say, pick up from you seven men of good repute. So good reputation. Before they get into this service role, this leadership role, they've got to have a good reputation. The, The people have to know them and respect them and honor them and trust them. People are going to lobby to get more food for their group, for their family. People are going to try to manipulate them. People are going to be dishonest with them. Offer them kickbacks. It's human nature, right? Give it a few weeks. The food distribution program become this political mess. But if these guys start on solid moral character grounds, well, that changes things. So it doesn't matter if you're good at counting and administrating. You also got to be of good repute. Good reputation here. Second thing, full of the Spirit. Now, when you become a Christian, the, the Holy Spirit of God, third member of the Trinity, comes to dwell in you and live in you permanently, never leaves you. 
New Testament says he's the, he's the seal, the guarantee of our salvation. Stamping you saying, this one belongs to me. He is sealed, never letting him go. But that's not what they're talking about here. Like the, this whole group is theoretically indwelt by the Spirit. If they're in Christ, then the Spirit is in them. They're saying filled with the Spirit. And we've seen this already a little bit in Acts. We'll see it a lot more as we go through the rest of Acts. Though the Spirit dwells in us, as we go through our lives, there's different levels to which we are filled with the Spirit, the way the New Testament says. Sometimes it's, our sails are full and they're trimmed correctly and the boat is just sailing along under the fullness of the Spirit. Sometimes our sails are down or ripped or they're not trimmed right or our boat is upside down and we're kind of empty, as it would seem at that point in our lives. We're not abandoned, but we're not quite as full as we were before. I can't get into this right now, but I would suggest to you that the main thing that determines whether or not you are really filled with the Spirit in a particular moment or season in your life is your willingness to obey Christ. If you are trying to make yourself king of your life, then the spirit of your king has little room to fill you, right? Makes sense. So we need good reputation, guys. We need men who are filled with the spirit. They're walking in step with the spirit. The spirit is leading them. Their sails are full. Third qualification, full of wisdom. They're going to need wisdom. They're, you don't want a foolish person in charge of this or it's going to go badly. You need a wise person. They're going to have to deal with all the, all the team. It's not just the seven of them. They're going to build a team to distribute the food to these thousands of people and make sure it works. So you're going to have to deal with people that get on each other's nerves and complain about other team members or don't do their job or try to sneak a donut when they're, not, when they're supposed to be giving it to a widow. They're, there's going to be interpersonal things that have to be dealt with. These guys are going to have to encourage, equip, correct, sometimes even confront people in their sin, and you need people who are wise, full of wisdom to do this. So this is a lot more than just counting and organizing and making sure that people get the food. Now, we don't know how long this process of choosing them took and everything, but they choose their seven. Verse five. What they said, that is the plan presented by the apostles, pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, gotta like that guy, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So we get the names of these seven, and interestingly, all seven of those are Greek not Hebrew names. Okay, we got a problem. Our Greek widows are being shorted. We're going to put seven Greek identity people in charge of this. Now, if you're a Hebrew widow, that might make you a little nervous, right? This is going to be revenge. Am I going to be shorted now? And yet, this pleased, it says, the whole company. Now, we don't know much about these guys other than um, the, the last guy, Nicholas. We know he's a proselyte, which means he was born a Gentile, a non-Jew. Probably in his adult life, he converted to Judaism. Then he hears the gospel of Jesus, and he converts again to Christianity. But the guy that we're told the most about, and the guy who's first on the list on purpose, is this guy named Stephen. Stephen is actually going to be the main character through the rest of chapter 6, and the rest of chapter 7, the next few weeks, it's really all about Stephen. Stephen, who is chosen to distribute bread, becomes a hero of the early church and the first martyr of the Christian church. He says, yeah, I'll distribute the bread. Days later, he's dead. Sobering thought. He's described as full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be great if that's how we were known? Like, There's a job to be done. Let's pick some people. Okay, he, she, we know that they are full of faith and the Holy Spirit. 
great if it was true of all of us. He's named first. He's singled out as an impressive example of exactly what they're looking for. These seven are brought together, and we're told that the apostles laid their hands on them and prayed for them. This is an ordination ceremony. This is a commissioning, because this is a whole lot more than go count the bread and make sure the widows get what they need. This is the physical ministry of the food distribution is a spiritual ministry necessary for the health and the flourishing of the church. Just like if we don't pay the bills and the heat's off and the lights are off and the, there's nobody watching the kids, those physical ministries are actually spiritual ministries. The food distribution is actually a spiritual ministry. These seven guys are the first deacons of the New Testament. They're not called deacons. Later, we would find out that this actually is an office of the New Testament church, deacons. Deacon means a servant leader. So the word itself just means servant. But as it becomes used in the church, it becomes servant leader. Jesus is the perfect example of this, isn't he? The best leader the world has ever seen. And yet, on the night when he's betrayed, he's on his knees washing the dirty, stinky, nasty feet of his disciples, serving them. The God of the universe comes as a humble baby, serves us, gives up his life for us. Such an example of servant leadership. And as the church grows and spreads throughout the world, this label deacon becomes very important. We see it throughout the rest of the New Testament. Now, in our church, we have deacons. We just call them something else because 10 years ago or so when we restructured the church, we decided we would refer to these people as ministry team leads. So we've got these six areas, primary areas of ministry in the church, and we've got certain people over those ministries serving as deacons. So we've got Kelly Voizard over the kids and the youth. We've got Trudy Coverman over the worship ministry. We've got Chris Austin over finance. He's just getting started with that. And we've got John Snyder over facilities. And then we've got nobody currently over adults and outreach. Chris Austin was in adults until last month. We put him up into finances instead. That's how we've structured our church here. And those two holes are serious holes. The physical ministry and the spiritual ministry of the church suffers when we do not have deacons doing what the church needs them to do. It'd be many years later that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, giving him instructions about how to select deacons. Look for these kind of people to fill this job. Timothy's overseeing a bunch of churches in the area of Ephesus, and he needs people to do the stuff that needs to be get done, and so Paul gives him instructions. And if we look at 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, we get a list, not so much of things that deacons need to do, but things that deacons need to be in order to qualify as a deacon. So in Acts, we get the first deacons, and we've got those three qualifications. It's just a quick introduction to the idea of deacons. And 1 Timothy 3, we get more details. Paul says this, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's more to it, but that's that's our main passage that tells us what kind of person are we looking for when we're talking about that deacon role. The passage right before that gives us a similar, very similar description of what to look for in an elder. These are the two New Testament offices or leadership positions in the church. Elder, which we would also say pastor, overseer, bishop, it's all the same thing in the New Testament. Elder and deacon, those are the two 
leadership offices. And character-wise, they're pretty much the same. Big lists of high character qualifications. We want people who are mature in the faith. We want people who are trustworthy. We want people who are faithful in their marriages and leading and serving their family well. And then you get this, this whole list of things that should be true about the people, saying very little about what is actually being done. The, the main difference between the list of the elders earlier in the chapter and the list of the deacons that we just read is, is a functional difference. The elders are called to the teaching and preaching ministry. And so in the qualifications for the elders, it says you must be able to teach or competent at teaching. It's because the, the main way, depending on the elder, or one of the main ways that an elder leads and shepherds the church is through the ministry of the word, whether it's preaching or teaching formally, or one-on-one or small group discipleship. It's the ministry of the word that defines an elder. It's the ministry of doing stuff, getting things done, that defines the deacon. And so the deacon is not required to be a good teacher like an elder is required. But the character qualifications are pretty much the same in these two passages. That should show us that it's not that the the elders are like better than the deacons, more important, they're different. They focus on one thing, the deacons focus on another thing. Without both of them, the church is unhealthy. In another letter, the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians, and he would talk not specifically about elders and deacons, but about everybody in the church. And he would use the analogy of the body, saying that we're all different parts of the body, and the body needs all the parts, and the bodies need to do the, part, the roles that they're designed to do. Everything needs to work together, or it just doesn't work. So in 1 Corinthians 12, we read this, verse 14. For the body, talking about actual physical body as a picture for the church as a body. The body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. This idea of God is sovereign over the body, not just your physical body, but the body of the church. He, he puts this congregation together according to his plan. Some of you are ears, and some of you are eyes, and some of you are pinky toes. We have different callings, different roles, and each part of the body, according to the Word of God here, is important. Even if it's an invisible role, even if it's, a, if it's the role that really nobody else wants, we take it. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, is saying it's all important. You can't remove part of the body and expect the body to be healthy. We can't say to the right leg, hey, you're part of the body, but don't do anything. We're just going to ignore you and expect the body to be healthy. The left leg can't say, I really wish I was the right ear. It doesn't work. God has arranged the body as he chose. Our church, VCC, is called to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in Versailles and around the world. That's why we exist. And for us to do that, we need a faithful, effective proclamation of the gospel. Without that, how do people know that they need to turn from their sins and place all their trust in Christ and be born again? The gospel must be proclaimed. The word of God must be taught. We need the discipleship of the believers so they're growing stronger, more Christ-like, more mature, that they're multiplying themselves by making other disciples. We need that. We can't accomplish our mission of glorifying God and making disciples if we don't also have people serving in the ways that they've been called, equipped, commissioned to serve. We have to have both the trellis and the vine 
sailing skills, and the wind. In Acts, we saw there was a problem. Food distribution. There was a solution. Entrust deacons, servant leaders, to the job of administrating the food program. What was the result? We'd expect the result to be, well, the widows all got fed and the stress was reduced and people weren't fighting with each other. And there was unity in the church, right? Verse 7. Here's the result, according to Luke. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's a bigger picture than people got fed, and they stopped fighting with each other, right? Three things there. The word of God continued to increase. That doesn't mean they, they kept writing more chapters of the Bible. New Testament's not written at all at that point. They're not writing it at that point. What they mean by that is the word of God continues to go out, continues to be proclaimed. So when the apostles say, look, our main job is the proclamation of the word. That's not going to happen if we have to distribute the food. Somebody else distributes the food. Now the proclamation of the word happens. It goes out. The gospel spreads because somebody else is making sure that the bread is distributed. It's not just a physical ministry. It's a spiritual ministry. Second thing, the disciples multiplied, and look at the modifier there, greatly. Now, they've already uh, multiplied seriously greatly, right? From 120 to multiple thousands, and now, now they multiply even more. It's amazing multiplication is a result, in part, of the administration of the church. Administration is important. The physical, the mundane, the behind the scenes, the getting your hands dirty, distributing the food is important. It resulted in multiplication, even faster, disciples. And then the third thing, many priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this is really surprising because if you're a Jewish priest from childhood, you have been selected and schooled and trained and apprenticed and you just your whole life has been pointing you towards being a Jewish priest and the whole reason to be a priest is to every day offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the Jewish people. But if Jesus is that once and for all final sacrifice, you're out of a job, right? These guys are saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he's the sacrifice for the sins, and so I'm giving my life to him, even to the degree that I'm walking away from my career, my life calling, that I've been bred up all the way from childhood to be. I'm saying, i got to go find another job, because there's no reason for me to be offering sacrifices, because Jesus is that final sacrifice. That radical conversion, that radical faith, Luke tells us, is a result of people distributing bread. It all works together. The administration side is very important. For the church to be healthy, we need servant leaders. We need servants. We need all of us serving together. And it's not just getting things done. It's being the trellis that supports the vine so that it can grow. Probably no surprise where we're going with this for application, right? We want you guys serving, right? Everybody who calls VCC their home, especially those who are covenanted as members, we need you serving. We need you serving regularly. We need you serving in the, in the way that you're gifted and designed and called and maybe sometimes even not in that way because there's something else needs to get done and somebody's got to do it, right? But we need you. We need you serving. So to help you think about that, I want to just quickly walk through, and we'll put them on the screens, examples of ways that you can serve in each of the six main areas of ministry. We'll start with the kids and youth. So there's a nursery. So right now... Um, There are people downstairs caring for the youngest kids so that you guys can learn and grow without the distraction. 
Good timing there. Distraction noise comes from the back. Kids club also happening downstairs. Kids are growing. They're learning. They're understanding what they've been taught. If they were listening to me right now, they would have tuned out a long time ago. But they're being taught specifically for their age group downstairs in kids club. Special events, child care. So like Christmas Eve, we're going to have child care for the nursery. And nobody wants to do that, right? Because everybody wants to be with their family and their friends and the candlelight and the, the singing of the silent night and all that. And yet, in order to make that work, we need a few people to say, I am willing to make that sacrifice and, and serve in that way. Or when we have a, a special class, like we had the, the parenting class last year, we had the finance class this year on Wednesday nights, and people served sacrificially to care for kids during those classes. Hopefully this summer we can do VBS again. It's been too long. I want to do VBS. We'll need people to serve in leadership and in behind the scenes making snacks and in helping wrangle kids all over the place. We need to do that in order to serve our community. Youth leaders on, on Wednesday nights or retreat leaders that don't normally serve the youth, but they're willing to go on a retreat. So we're intending to send our junior high and high school kids to Saida Hills camp in February, and maybe you could go as a youth leader. Not going to get a lot of sleep those two nights, but you're going to have a great time. You're going to build friendship with some kids that hopefully will last years. If we look at the worship ministry, well, obviously, you'd be part of the, the worship band, right? That might be scary for a lot of people, but there's the tech ministry, the sound, the computer, the live stream. In the back, people as ushers and greeters making coffee, bringing snacks, cleaning up afterwards, uh, decorations, like setting up our, our, our Christmas decorations, getting the communion stuff ready and cleaning it up on communion Sundays. Those are all part of the worship ministry. In the finance ministry, we've got counters. So every Sunday, the offering is collected. Two people work together in the office after the service in order to count it and record things. We need people serving on teams like that. Planning. All right, if we've got a big expense coming, how are we going to plan for that in a wise way? Project management. So the 2020 advance campaign, how we have been paid for Daniel's salary, or if we wanted to pay off the mortgage faster, we need people with financial literacy to help make those kind of decisions and run those kind of programs. Budgeting each year, tracking, forecasting, saying, hey, I've noticed that the price of natural gas has gone up this month, Are we, or this much in the last few months. Are we factoring that into next year's budget? We need people thinking in those ways and serving in those ways. And we also need people discipling others in finances too, coaching people, helping people with the budget, helping people control their spending, helping people prioritize giving to the kingdom of God. In the adult ministry, we need discipleship of believers. Maybe that's leading a small group, a men's Bible study, a women's Bible study, an outpost, a discipleship group of just two or three people, outpost leadership and leader training, classes like the financing and parenting class, social events, the Amazing Race, the Chili Cook-Off, those kind of things. Those all fall under adult ministry. We need people to do those things. In the outreach ministry, we would find service projects. Somebody uh, in the community needs help with something, and we organize a group of people, and we, we go fix their porch or whatever it is. Evangelism training. I think of the mission weekend that we did a few months ago as we uh, intentionally interacted with our community in specific ways, and we had a training time for how to speak to people in gospel conversations. Mission trips. Love the trip that we took a few years ago down to southern Kentucky. I hope that we can do something like that again very soon. Supporting of our missionaries. That is, we take 10% of what comes in to the general offering. We set that aside as the outreach budget, and it gets divvied up into different missionaries that we support in different parts of the world. And benevolence. Somebody calls the church, contacts the church, they have a need, who makes the decision about whether or not we meet the need, how we meet the need, managing all that stuff, that's all under outreach. And then finally, facilities, so maintenance and repair of things, cleaning, uh, organizing things, planning and project management, so maybe there are significant repairs, you know, maybe upgrade something or fix a roof or a multi-stage thing over a month that has to be planned out, the clearing of the snow, the cutting of the grass, purchasing things, like we, we're missing a whole bunch of knobs from the ancient stove downstairs. I need somebody to just take a knob and figure out how to buy one of those. 
I got no idea where to get one. So if you want to be a knob buyer, talk to me after the service, and you will be fulfilling one of those physical ministries that help spiritual ministries. All right. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to transition into communion. We're going to have a special song during communion. And uh, when, if you're participating in communion this morning because you placed your faith in Christ and in Him alone for salvation, I will get up and invite you to come forward for communion. And just like we've always done the last few years, you come down the center aisle. If you come to this side, uh, I'll have a regular loaf of bread that you can rip off and dip in the juice, eat, and go into the outside. There'll also be a single slice of a gluten-free loaf over here. On this side, you'll just have regular bread and the cup, and you can go around this way. I'm going to pray specifically about servant opportunities. And then during a time of reflection, as we get ready for communion, there's going to be some questions on the screen to help you think through possible next steps for yourself. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in Acts chapter 6. Thank you for Stephen, and I really look forward to seeing how you use him in uh, pretty surprising and amazing ways over uh, the next few weeks. Lord, I thank you for uh, each person here. Um, those who belong to you, those who do not yet belong to you, those who are serving faithfully and those who are not serving or not serving in the way that you know they know that you're calling them to. Lord, I pray that you would uh, work in us, even in this time of reflection, but certainly as we go home, we go about our days and over the next few days and weeks, as we read your word, as we pray, as we ask you what you want, Lord, would you, would you work in us to get each of us serving in the way that you have chosen. Would you help us to, to say yes to the right things and to, to give ourselves to that act of ministry, to wholeheartedly do it as though we are serving our King, which is what we are doing. Lord, you know where the greatest needs are. You know who you've already picked in order to fill those needs. Would you please work in the hearts and the minds of us as a congregation today and in the days and weeks to come, filling those needs. Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you show us how to, how to build that trellis the right way so that the vine can grow? Would you work through the elders and the ministry team leads and other leaders in the church to, to encourage and to equip and to challenge and to confront all of the people who are serving in different ways. Lord, help us to grow in our administrative ministry. Help us to, to do the stuff that needs to get done so that we can glorify you by making disciples for sales and around the world. We want to be a stronger and healthier church. So we offer ourselves to you and ask you, Lord, to show us how it is you want us to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.